The Black and White Network presents The Credit Connection, a program sponsored by Cambridge Credit Counseling, an industry leader in providing advice and help to those who have concerns about their credit. With interest rates rapidly rising, your cost of credit is also draining your budget. This program will help you as consumers manage your credit to the best possible outcome. You will learn what's happening with interest rates, what the forecast might be for the directions of rates. You will be kept updated on the pricing of different credit products. You'll find out what credit products to stay away from and ones to use. You will learn strategies that can help you get control of your credit and keep it under control for you and your family. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit organization dedicated to provide you information and guidance so you can make the right decisions. So let's join our hosts, Dan Perkins and Gordon Oliver. Welcome to the Credit Connection. And joining me today is our co-host, Gordon Oliver from Cambridge Credit Counseling. Welcome, sir. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me as always. Uh, important times, tough economy, tough understanding about many things that are going on in the world. So as we related to financial wellness, as you can see, I have my mental health association shirt on. Direct correlation from financial wellness problems to mental health. So we continue trudging on to do everything we can to help people. Uh, I was speaking to Gordon before we went on the air about how convoluted the student loan situation is and how much it's how many times it's changed since the last time he and I spoke. Uh, we had the Supreme Court saying that Biden's initial $460 billion millions of students was unconstitutional. Then they brought out, after that was turned down, then they brought out this new plan, which I, and, and you can certainly help our audience, but also help me, is I read the proposed new plan, you have to make payments between 20 and 25 years, some form of payment on a consecutive basis before you can apply for forgiveness. So just tell us, first of all, what happened into the court, and then let's talk about, next we'll talk about the alternative. And as I said to you before, yesterday this uh an organization filed a, a suit against the biden administration claiming that the new program was about as just as unconstitutional as the other one and it now looks like it'll go to the supreme court so give us an update okay let's go back to let's go back to the rules right let's start with what the rules are what they were way before the waiver process what they were before these extra opportunities to try to fix problems of the past. And I wanna give the viewers a little bit of context on my experience so that they understand where I'm coming from, okay? In 2014, as you know, we're credit counselors that help people with unsecured debt problems. And in 2014, after several years of consumers coming to us, with financial difficulty paying their bills, one of the byproducts of that was student loans. Whether they be federal or private, and today we're talking about the federal student loan issue, right? So these are federal loans we're talking about. So getting back to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, for those that are listening, the acronym for that is PSLF, okay? So we don't commingle things. The Public Service Loan Forgiveness was a program that was designed and implemented in 2007, where if you were a public servant, meaning you work for the government, 
the city, the state, a municipality, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you just internet search PSLF form, the form will come up and the one that you have to give to your HR department to, to basically verify your employment. So if you look at that form on page two, it shows the eligible employers that qualify. So number one, you have to work for an eligible employer, what I just laid out. Number two, you'd have to be on what's called an income-driven repayment program, which is a program of that are four different repayment programs with different formulas to basically calculate what your payment would be. And you'd have to be on one of those income-driven repayment plans. Number three, you would have to have direct loans. The direct loan program was designed in 1992 as a challenge or a different direction from the FFELP program, which is the Family Federal Education Loan Program. The difference between the two, the Family Federal Education Program was private banks that would lend people money way back um, from the late 50s. And the government would guarantee the funds for the bank. So if the consumer did not pay for the loan, the government would guarantee it. But it's still a private bank loan. You with me so far? Yes, sir. Okay. The direct loan program in 1992 moved to a program where the government would lend the money directly to the consumer for their education. But it really didn't pick up steam until the Obama administration came into uh, their their time frame, and the the public service loan forgiveness program was implemented by the Bush administration. So in 2007, you had to be with direct loans, and that was the big problem, Dan. Many people had these family federal education loans that were not eligible. You had to be on an income driven repayment plan, and then you had to make 120 eligible payments. So essentially, in October of 2007, if all things were whole. In 2017 of October, you would make 120 payments and you would then apply to get your loans forgiven. Fast forward to that time frame, And when we got involved with some of the teachers associations and whatnot, people did not understand one of those things. And they either had family federal education loans that weren't direct loans, say they weren't eligible or they weren't on the right repayment program. So when we would go in to try to counsel people and help them fix it, they wouldn't get credit for anything up until that time frame. Once things were fixed, if they the payment program was wrong and we fixed it, they basically started then payment one of the 120 needed. So people were in uproar. They thought they were getting their loans forgiven and they didn't. So um, the fix to all of that, fast forward now to last year, October 22 to um I'm sorry, October 21 to October 22, they put in a waiver process that if you had family federal education loans or you were on the wrong repayment program, you could consolidate the loans and get retroactive credit by waiver of those payments, even though they weren't eligible. So that was the fix, Dan, to get people to get their loans forgiven. I'll stop there for a minute. I just want to, because I'm glad you did, because I do want to ask a question. During that time sequence that you mentioned I, I believe i'm correct on this private lenders went out of the student loan business and it became a government business period the date on that dan was 2010 so in 2010 the private sector no longer made student loans they were all is, uh, issued and guaranteed by the uh, 
by the direct, United States government. Direct loan program, the federal direct loan program, yes. Okay, I just want to make sure I got that right. Okay. Yeah, and that's an important distinction because anybody that went to school 2010 or after when that was implemented, if they were borrowing, they wouldn't have to worry about having the wrong loans because the loans would be direct loans then. So anybody that went to school, essentially, let's use 2011 because it was late in 2010, but let's just use 2011. If anybody listening to your program went to school in 2011 or further and, and went through studentaid.gov and the Department of Education, any of those loans that came from the government were via the direct loan program. And they don't have to do anything about consolidation or they're, they're in the right kind of loan, but still, even if they're in the right kind of loan, it could take up to 20 years before they get any forgiveness at all. All right, let me separate that now. Just one more piece. Yes, that fixed the loan problem, but if they were on the wrong repayment program, they weren't on any of the income-driven repayment plans. Now, the standard 10-year plan is an eligible plan, but it doesn't make any sense because if you're in a standard 10-year plan, in 10 years, your loans are paid off, so there's nothing to forgive, right? Right, yeah. So the way that that helped somebody is if they were on the standard plan for three years, they would get credit for those three years of payment and shift to a different repayment program. But again, it, this is why it's confusing and I'm gonna do my best to keep it simple and lay it out. So let's separate the question you're asking. If you didn't work for an eligible employer, let's say you worked for a for-profit company, let's say IBM, Home Depot, whatever the company is, right? you're ineligible for the public service loan forgiveness. But the original income-driven plan was the Income-Based Repayment Plan, acronym IBR. And that formula would basically have you, um, there's a formula of 10% of discretionary income would be your monthly payment. So I have, I'm going to break the formula down for the current uh, new repayment program that they put in in a minute. Maybe we'll do that in segment two so I can explain how to figure out okay. the payments. But there are calculators online that you can do that with. But I want to break it down for the listeners so they understand. But after the income-based repayment program, they created the pay-as-you-earn and the revised pay-as-you-earn programs, right? So if you did not work for an eligible employer, every year you would have to submit your tax return or your income if it changed to get your payment calculated. And if you did that, depending on the program for 20 or 25 years, <laughs> once you hit that timeline, your loans would get forgiven. Now in the old rules, that would be taxable income. So you wanna talk about if a low income waged individual went on that program, they could actually qualify depending on their income and family size for a $0 monthly payment and be eligible. Think about how that works. In the pandemic, people are being charged 0% interest with zero payment. So no harm, no foul, the balance isn't going anywhere unless they make payments, then it will go down. Since interest is not being charged, the balance is pretty much at a flat line until this coming September when interest comes back in. In the old world, if you had a $0 payment, that would qualify for 12 months and then you'd have to reapply every year, like I mentioned, but interest would accrue. So these balances, Dan, would grow and grow and grow and grow. And if in 20 or 25 years, depending on the program, when it got forgiven, there would be a very large taxable event for someone with very low income. Wait, wait, so, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're, you're saying that a loan balance 
that accrued and then was paid off is taxable income to a certain low income individual? Let me repeat it just so that our listeners understand it. I'm going to give the example. If I have, was a low income, let's say I was, um, I, I was at the poverty guideline and I had a family of four, I essentially would qualify for a $0 payment, okay? Right. That All balance right. would accrue. And if I didn't wasn't a public servant after 20 or 25 years, whatever that balance was, it would get forgiven and be taxable. So in essence, this is, um, I'm not trying to put more mud in the water, but I, I am, I've got a hold of it. Um, it's phantom income. It's, it's, in, it's, it's not it's, phantom income, it's phantom debt. Because but it turns into phantom income at 20 years. Correct. Now they fix that. They, so they, they, they rewrote that piece. So this is where we fast forward to where we are now with what they're trying to propose. They're trying to take that same retroactive approach at people that have been paying for 20, 25 years and forgive their loans. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. Two different, completely different programs, right? The public servant one, I'll tell you just from experience, the public service loan forgiveness program for public servants was viable. The problem was, is that people were not, and this is where we get into the, the, um, the business side of things. So the Department of Education, and we can have another conversation in another day on this, but when they choose their contractors to do the work, right? And I can tell you this from experience, the reason that there's been an overhaul is because many of the servicers to do this explanation for millions of members, they just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't pry and counsel because they get paid dirt money to service a student loan account. So when people would call Dan, they wouldn't do dig deep into the situation to educate the consumer. They would just answer the question asked. So, so let me, I, we got about 30 seconds for the breakdown. I just want to ask you one qualifying question. Yeah. We have government guaranteed loans for people going and working for city, county, state, education, nonprofits, whatever. Yes. Compare the size of the market, and I, I'm, I, what I mean, how much money's been loaned for that, and then for the rest of us who are working in the private sector, which you just talked about. It's a different, di difficult statistic, Dan, because people will shift um, careers, right, in an effort to get their loans forgiven. So it's not a fixed, that's not a fixed number. Once people have become more aware of the program, people didn't even know it existed. The only reason that in like the, the public service loan forgiveness in the teacher realm is because their union would advocate for teacher loan forgiveness and public service loan forgiveness and actually try to do some work to fix it where many nonprofits, so I, I go to some city uh, town hall meetings and whatnot, and people don't even know that it exists as an employer. So it's a lot of lack of information that affects people. And that's why we try to bring awareness to it. And, and being on a forum like this is a great opportunity for that. So um, we're speaking with Gordon Oliver, uh, Cranbury Credit Corporation uh, about student loans. And we're gonna continue this uh, discussion
after the break. We'll be right back. Inflation for most people is causing them to use their credit cards to try and make up for income shortfalls. How big is this problem? In the second quarter of 2022, Americans added $46 billion to their credit card balances. Some of that could be you. The Federal Reserve Consumer Credit Report showed that the rate of interest on credit cards went from 14.56 to 16.65%. Those Americans struggling with credit card debt saw their delinquency rates escalate from 1.66% to 1.81%. The Cambridge Debt Consolidation Program may be able to help you reduce the interest rates by two-thirds and cut your time to pay off the debt from 30 years years to as little as five years. If you're struggling and you want professional and objective help getting your credit house in order, then call 1-855-435-2066 or Welcome go to- back to a fascinating conversation. And I'm glad it's him and it's not me, Gordon Oliver from Cambridge Credit Counseling Corporation. We're talking about the Supreme Court decision on student loans. And we're going to hopefully spend some time this segment talking about the new alternative proposal from the Biden administration, which is $39 billion and 800,000 students, which yesterday came under fire from organizations as being unconstitutional. So Gordon, keep us on the journey. I will do my best, sir. Um, So let's talk about the four income driven plans because for people this no more valuable. And I think the next time I come on, we can do more work here because there's some deadlines coming up and people are trying to figure out how am I gonna fit my student loan payment into my budget? If they're public servants, there's some important deadlines coming. So in this segment, I'm gonna do my best to break it down. So there's four income driven repayment plans. There's income contingent repayment. There's income based repayment, IBR. There's pay, which is pay as you earn, P-A-Y-E. And revised pay as you earn, which is transitioning now to the save plan, which is what your question was. I'm not going to spend too much time on income contingent ICR because that's for parent plus loans. The formula is not very favorable when people are trying to get lower payments. It is an option, but it's certainly not one that most people choose unless they're trying to find a way to get eligibility for loan forgiveness. So the income-based repayment, and this is how it works, and I'll, I'll give one example in a minute, once I explain the programs, but I'll give one example about how it works. uh, Income-based repayment program, IBR, is basically available to all student loan borrowers. Uh, A partial financial hardship is required, which basically means, you know, the math of your income and your family size versus what the formula is to have a lower possible payment than Um, some of the other programs. So anyone that makes less than 150% of the poverty guideline would pay 0% or $0 a month rather on their payment and actually qualify and have it count. So if they go on the income-based repayment, anyone making less than 150% of the poverty guideline would pay zero. Anyone making more would pay 10% of discretionary income. And again, I'll break this down after I explain the programs. But Um, Typically, what happens is um, on the public service loan forgiveness, the taxable amount that would be um, when you forgive that loan amount is actually waived, as I explained. And what what they're trying to do in the newer way of things is for the people that aren't public servants, if they go on these programs, like I mentioned in the previous segment, it is taxable income. And I keep an eye on that all the time because it goes back and forth. And I'll be happy to update that when we talk again 
um, on the taxable side of things, because that's one of the things that's in flux. So pay as you earn, P-A-Y-E is, you must have borrowed your loans from October 1st of 2007 to October 1st of 2011. It's 10% of discretionary income. And then of course, same kind of formula, a little bit less of a payment typically than the income-based repayment plan. Then the revised pay as you earn was actually, it's revised for a reason. They revised the pay as you earn to allow married couples um, to have their income included because what would happen is there was ways with the pay as you earn that married couples could separate their income, but they adjusted to make all married couples have all income included regardless of their tax status. So if a married couple was married filing jointly or married filing individual on pay as you earn, they could use their own income, but on revised pay as you earn, they close that loophole by making all income be included. So that was a thing that they did, obviously, because people were using individual income when in fact they were married. So let's talk about today's program and I'm gonna break down um, the SAVE program or the revised, <laughs> revised pay as you earn. So SAVE is the revised, revised pay as you earn. And how it works is it's open to all borrowers with direct loans. It uses 225% of the corresponding federal poverty guideline. The difference in the program is the payment is 5% of discretionary income if you go over that poverty guideline. For undergraduate loans, important undergrad loans are treated differently. It's 5%. And for the graduate loans, it's 10%. Another correction is spouse's income won't be considered if married filing separately. So they went backwards on that loophole. And then loan forgiveness after 20 years for undergraduate loans and 25 years for graduate loans or 120 payments for the public service loan forgiveness. So they're automatically enrolling people onto this save or revise, revise pay as you earn if they were enrolled in the pay as you earn. I'll stop there for a minute before I go over how things are formulated. Any questions? Okay, so, yes. So when, when you're talking about somebody who is... A, at or below the poverty level, if I heard you correctly, you said that the payment, there would be zero payment. Correct. And if they continue to stay at the, at or below the poverty level, they have no payment. And then at 20 years, the entire loan can be forgiven, but the aggregated amount of the principal borrowed plus the accumulated interest depending upon the person's situation, can be waived for free or be treated as taxable income. Is yep, and I'm going to be sure to update that on the next on the next opportunity because like it's convoluted, I'm explaining each payment program, finding out the qualifications of when it would be waived or if it will be waived is still in debate, right? So that's an update I'm going to be happy to give when um, I come on again. That's the one that's kind of a little wonky when it comes down to it. So let me ask one more question. Yeah. In all of the programs that you've just articulated, is the government making any loans today? Direct loans are the only loans in the federal space still. So they're still lending the money to people that are parent plus loans and undergrad and graduate loans are still made available through the direct loan program. And it's a direct, would, would the 
low-income people that are below at or below the poverty line that don't have to pay back? Is that in still in effect today? It's not that they don't have to pay it back. It's that if they go on a payment program, so again, to not convolute the two, if they're lower in poverty, most of the aid that they'll get will mean they're probably not taking out loans. Some people can go to school for free because they meet the guidelines to get that type of aid, right? So it all depends on when the person applies. See, this is where it gets really, again, uh, a different conversation for a different day, but a high school student coming in to go to college is using the family's income for their measurement of whether they need aid or not. And typically the student will get aid in the form of a direct loan if their family has income that's you know reasonable income. Um, they'll get an aid package where they can borrow up to X amount of dollars through the direct loan program and the rest falls on the family to fund the education, right? So depending on the income of the family at the time that the high school student is applying, they could legitimately get mostly aid to pay for school and then maybe a little bit of loan amount for them to pay for it. And that's all based on family size and income at the time of application. That's why in October, when the FAFSA is due, we can do a whole segment on the FAFSA process on, on what families need to do when their senior is, is now a senior in high school and they have a year to figure things out. We'll do a whole segment on that. But Okay. So the other, me, thing I wanted, other thing I wanted to ask you is that um, the new program that the administration announced, yes, which is dramatically reduced $39 billion and 800,000 potential students. Is any money being loaned on that program? So the, the program that they implemented is for people already in debt, not for the people that are applying to, to actually fund their education. So this is why it's going to directly impact the people that are already um, that are going through education and getting funded now because they're going to need to know what options they have once this all gets sorted out. And for the people in school, a lot of them are in in-school deferment where they don't have to make payments yet. But if they're not, if they're unsubsidized loans, interest accrues while they're in school on those loans. So the balance essentially grows while they're in school where subsidized loans are actually the interest is covered by the government. And that usually is for lower income people. Mm. okay we got about right. we got four minutes left yes i'm gonna i'm gonna give this i'm gonna be as concise as i can be right so okay. under the save program which is the revised revised pays you earn we're going to use an example of an adjusted gross income is sixty five thousand dollars. okay so on the tax return there's a line item adjusted gross income let's say we're going to use the number of sixty five thousand. okay the federal poverty guideline for a family of four, we're gonna consider this example as it's the family of four. The federal poverty guideline, and you can just internet search federal poverty guideline and it lists the states in the poverty guideline. But again, there's calculators on studentaid.gov that you can just plug this in. But the, the poverty guideline for a family of four is 25,750. So 225% of that, which is the new guideline for the SAFE program, is 57,937. So if you subtract 57,937 uh, from the 65,000, which is the adjusted gross income, the discretionary income is 7,063. 
If you take 5% of that discretionary income, that's $353.15. Divide that by 12 months in a year, the payment for that consumer, 65,000 adjusted gross and income, family of four, the payment's $29.42 per month. So what does that mean, Dan? If, a per, if this family of four makes 65,000 and they get on this payment program, essentially they're going backwards in the balance because 29.42 per month is not gonna cover the interest and it's not based off the balance. That's the problem. It's not your traditional loan formula that would say, okay, based off the balance and this interest, this is your monthly payment and this is how many months it will be. The income-driven plans are tricky because they're only for 12 months and it's not related to the balance. It's related to adjusted gross income, family size, and the poverty line. So the payment essentially could make you go backwards in your loan balance because of interest. So that's where the danger lies for people. And that's why so many people got into debt on income-driven plans because they didn't understand what the attachment or what the consequences were. So under the formula, the um is it possible? Probably is, but is for my my gratification and for my audience under that the last loan that you just talked about. Yep. Uh, the the payment schedule based on the formula does not meet typical banking standards as far as amortization of the outstanding loan balance. No, it does not. It has nothing so the, to do with that. Is is it possible that the loans will never get paid off? by the by the borrower well how about this if the if the income of this family same example was 57,937, their payment would be zero for 12 months and if that was the same formula next time when they reapply for it it's zero again so what does that mean interest is tacking on to the loan and the balance is growing so this gets to your point where we started this conversation is if after 20 or 25 years a person's getting their loans forgiven because they're on a revised payment plan, that's a government subsidy that they're offering for people to get out of the debt. So it's a forgiveness of sorts. Mm. So eventually you can go, you can go belly up and the government will forgive the loan because you can't you never could afford to make it. It's make not even belly up. It's a program they're offering to mitigate it, right? So if you're a low income under the poverty line, you pay zero dollars for 20 or 25 years the balance gets forgiven. Now, the taxable part and not taxable is still something that I'm going to update for you because that's an important piece to understand. Wow. Imagine a balance growing from 50,000 to 110 and then you getting a tax income tax bill and you only and you're in the poverty guideline, it doesn't make any sense. Agreed, agreed. We're unfortunately um these are very complex subjects but they're important. And as you pointed out, they're, we're getting ready to have a new group of in incoming freshmen are trying to figure out what they want to do. This Gordon, is an important uh, segment we can do in the fall. I'd love to go over it to help people just narrow down what to do. Okay, so um, if people have questions, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, another important piece of that question is we do provide student loan counseling and it is at no cost to the consumer, right? So the counseling is free because we wanna help people understand how this works and get them in the right decision-making um, mind frame. And that's why we do that type of counseling to get people straight on what's being done. But 
The 800 number is 855-435-2066. Or you can go to cambridge-credit.org forward slash B as in black, W as in white, dash podcast. Or if they call, they just need to say that they they heard us on the BW black and white uh, podcast and we'll be happy to help them in any way that we can. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. Absolute pleasure, Dan. Look forward to our next time together. You bet. All right, bye-bye now. And uh, we'll be right back. And we're done. Man, is that, that it twisted my brain around. Like I'm, I'm glad my children are all out of college and I don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Man, Dan, I tell you, man, I work again. I think I told you I worked three jobs. Yeah. Did you see, do you see this morning that the Fed is talking about raising rates again? I did. And FHA said this morning that the rate of interest on a 30 year FHA loan is 702, the highest from highest since 2002, 20 years. That's unbelievable. You know what the problem is for us too? I, and this, and I'm, this is me just being down to earth with you. Mm-hmm. And I understand the why. I just, I cannot tolerate how the real estate and mortgage industry are trying to spin this. And they're spinning it like, oh, interest rates used to be 9%. People just have to get used to it. No, it's absolutely egregious to have to pay 7 8 9% for a mortgage again. Because now you've got all these people that refinance and the payment that they thought that they could plan for for the size of the house that they want and the taxation on the value of the home is all something that can't be just brushed over. It has to be explained to people almost like, you know, this is some of the work that we do when people say they're ready to buy a home because they're tired of renting. That sounds wonderful, but they don't really understand the ramifications and what it is to be a homeowner and what the costs are going to be. So this is the the battle between industries where, you know, we got to kind of push back on some of that messaging because people will get destroyed in a in a situation like this. There are there are people out there today who are suggesting that the single family home is safe. In fact, are people saying that there's a shortage of about 4.8 million single family homes in the country. Uh, and and I, could, I could believe that. I see how fast housing is going up here in Southwest Florida. Yeah. But the commercial real estate, the commercial real estate is suffering because of the pandemic. And what happened was, it may even happen in your, your company, Millions of companies made the decision to have their employees work remotely, not come into the office. And they have worked so long in the the home office environment, they're finding it difficult to get people to come back into an office building. We are the case study, Dan. And on top of what's happening is that the, the management of the company is saying, wait a minute, I'm paying for a 40% vacancy rate in the space that I'm renting, I need to get out of this. So eventually we just redid our lease as a result. Yeah. And so what happens is that you've got a lot of commercial property that's going to sit vacant. Yep. And I have, and I'm serious about this. I have a, a solution to part of the problem. 
if the property goes into bankruptcy, let the, let the city or state government take it over and convert it into homeless shelters. Yeah. Rather than put people on the street in tents and living in squalor, modify these office buildings into apartments and let people live there and provide services to help them try and recover and become a productive member of society. I love that idea, but I think that's going to get convoluted with the the immigrant crisis that we have now too. Um, that's that's where I see a lot of it going, um, because you see what's happening even in our state, Massachusetts. They just declared a state of emergency. Right, right. It's amazing. I did a show just before you this morning, and I was talking to the hosts, and I said, you know, it's interesting that we have government officials who five, 10 years ago decided that their, their city, county, or state was going to be a sanctuary city or state or county. Yep. And I don't think they understood what it mean to be a sanctuary city because now we have, for example, New York City who says they're out of space and yet they got a $100 million funding from the federal government for homeless shelters. And um, and so what you have is this uh, proliferation of people who are coming into the country illegally. And, and for the longest period of time, the Northern blue cities were immune from dealing with the homeless, homeless population and the illegal aliens that were coming in. Now they're, they're having to take illegal aliens into their communities. And the mayor of New York said, well, we don't have any more space. Yeah. And so, so how do you how do you get rid of your obligation if you have no more space? So I, I, I there the chickens is uh, the 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 famous minister from Chicago said the chickens are coming home to roost. Well, the chickens oh, yeah. are to roost based on those people who thought sanctuary cities would be the would be the solution, and it's and it's not. And and um, and it's caught as it was a story last week about the city of San Diego is starting a program to literally go in and tear all those camps down yeah and get the people to leave because they they just don't have the money to take care of it anymore so yes. lack of lack of planning and thinking about what the ramifications are or what you're going to do anyway thank you for being with us today as always great help and uh, we'll be in touch you got it, Dan. Just give me a little tickle on what you want to talk about next time, and I'll make sure I'm prepared, and I will also update the taxation side okay. of that 2025-year loan forgiveness. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining us today, and we'd like to hear your comments or questions. So go to bwradionetwork.com. That's bwradionetwork.com, and give us your questions or comments. And thanks for joining us today.